Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast where some friends from Philly get together to talk about all things entertainment, all things movie, all things cinema, uh, all things spooky, because uh, as you know, it's October and it's time for us to get into some uh, scary selects, some horror movies, uh, some movies that awkwardly fit the bill as horror movies, I would say, which perhaps is what we're getting into today. But before we get into that, uh, I am joined by Connor and Christine. Uh, Sam, fortunately, is uh, not in some house where she can't hear some attacker approaching or, or anything like that, or, or in, uh, in, in, in a haunted house uh, that was built on a burial ground or anything like that. As far as we know, she's, she's not in any paranormal environment and is doing just fine, but we wish her the best either way. Um, so welcome, guys. Uh, I know that you've been watching some interesting things lately. Uh, so to go around the horn with the two of you, what have you guys been checking out? So this is not a movie. Hope it's okay. I'm bringing it up. It is uh, a video game called, it's a new Metroid game, Metroid Dread. It was announced, the Metroid Dread as like an entity was announced almost 20 years ago. So it's finally, after multiple cancellations, it's finally come out. So I've returned the form for the Metroid franchise, if anyone listening is familiar. And it's just a really great example of environmental storytelling, something that the Metroid series has always been excellent at. And so with Dark Souls and Bloodborne and all, you know, the kind of new generation of environmental storytelling, it's cool to see a classic franchise have a simple story that's kind of fleshed out pretty effectively, some interesting twists and really effective uh, environmental storytelling and pairing storytelling with the mechanics of the game and upgrading your powers. Uh, so without the get too video game nerdy, uh, I've been really enjoying the story and the atmosphere uh, and the world of Metroid Dread. That's pretty much all I've been doing for the past like week. I, uh, for the very first time ever, watched the original Candyman uh, and was pretty oh. blown away. I, yeah, I thought it was terrifying and and really good. And it made me excited to see Mia DaCosta's new Candyman. Uh, I believe it has not yet come out or is it out on streaming? It came out about a month ago. Mm-hmm. Oh, it did. Oh, well, I'm clearly uh, not informed, but um, but yeah, I Candyman had, the original had always been on my list, and I just had never sat down and watched it. And I was like, "Wow, this is uh, this is great." I first watched that maybe three years ago, and I borrowed a copy from a previous guest and friend of the show, Tom. Um, he lent me his DVD, and so I watched that with some friends, and pretty blown away. I'm surprised that I missed it, um, you know, after years of really enjoying horror movies. So that's, uh, I'm glad to hear you watched it, and I really want to uh, see the sequel one day soon, or the new one. There's been plenty of sequels, but the newest one, which I, I've heard nothing but amazing things. Yeah, the actual sequels you can skip, I'd say. But yeah, that original one, Christine, is really great. Speaking of horror movies, um, I've had a bit of horror fatigue, I would say, over the past several years, to be honest. it's It's been kind of a long time coming, I think, because I got into horror movies at a very young age and absorbed a lot of them at a time when they should have been more uh, more devastating or more impactful. But because I watched so many of them, I was a little desensitized. So it was hard for me to narrow down what I wanted to do for this month uh, and for this theme, and then ultimately settled on... Uh, a 1988 film by the name of Dead Heat, 
Uh, I suppose it could only loosely be described as a horror movie. It is, in fact, kind of more of a buddy cop comedy, uh, but does incorporate a lot of pretty horrific elements on uh, on several different fronts, which are very fun and very well, uh, very well rendered and very well laid out as practical effects. In my opinion, I suppose uh, this is the first time that the two of you guys have seen this movie, because to my knowledge, uh, this this movie in general is pretty underrepresented. So that being said, what did you guys take away from Dead Heat in your first viewing? Um, I was mentioning before, it felt like every, I said this before, but every scene felt like a different movie. Definitely got the buddy cop comedy vibe. Then suddenly, once you were sort of falling into the slapstick comedy, the scene would shift and somebody's face would be melting in a, in stunning fashion, I'll have you know. Like, listeners out there, if you want to see some phenomenal face, literal face melting, spe- like, practical effects, this movie is your movie. Um, and then suddenly it veers into... Like kind of, I don't know. It had like some super, like, like B superhero vibes to it, and then suddenly, yeah, I the movie surprised me uh, on a lot of levels. But it felt like I was watching like three to four different movies in like all at the same time. <laughs> Is that a good thing or a bad thing in this case? I mean, it's it was like I, I will say that there were elements of the movie that. I could have like done without, but I think that this is a one of a kind movie. Uh, and seeing Treat Williams as something other than the as someone other than the father in Everwood was also hilarious, especially as he was undergoing rapid uh, decomposition of his body, and that was really funny. Um, but I I was pleasantly surprised that this movie was so. Uh, out there <laughs> and out there a great way to put it now connor this is your first time as well what was your takeaway it was my first time i echo all of what christine said before we were recording i was mentioning how it felt like the movie zigs and zags in a really fun way um it's a world that i became very interested in of like the pseudoscience that's happening um the characters i thought were interested but this buddy cop dynamic turned zombie movie turned corporateness um it's a tough movie to pin down in a good way um and i feel like it pretty effectively zigs and zags and does that zigging and zagging when you um kind of least expect it or it goes in directions that are surprising also in a good way so this was one I've never heard of before you know dave you know said he was going to pick this one and a pleasant surprise and it's currently free on Tubi. Um, so if you're listening when this came out, there's really no excuse to not watch it if you enjoyed this discussion. And I would also argue if you've uh, enjoyed our previous discussions or have watched Quiet Cool, uh, if you've watched My Demon Lover, if you've watched uh, I Come in Peace, I think this falls into that kind of camp of uh, very self-aware, campy 80s action, um, but while incorporating a lot of horror elements that we'll get into. If you think you and Dave have similar movie tastes, you should probably see this movie. Yes, I would say that that's accurate. Um, So the movie, speaking of a movie that zigs and zags, uh, is Dead Heat. Uh, So based a little bit kind of on the idea of a movie that came out in 1950 called DOA, which is sort of a classic noir film that's uh, 
pretty well respected and sort of considered uh, one of the big ones to watch. It's uh, this notion of a detective who, realizing that they've been poisoned, have 12 hours to solve their case and figure out who has poisoned them. Uh, but this movie takes it to new heights. Uh, this is a version in which uh, two detectives are looking into these sort of like zombie crimes. Uh, these crimes being committed by what seem to be the almost invincible undead uh, who are besieging the city. And in their investigation, one of the detectives, Roger Mortis, Mortis is his last name. Uh, so a bit of foreshadowing there is killed and then resurrected via a resurrection machine. And then before he decomposes, he and his partner, Doug Bigelow, have about 12 hours to see exactly how all of this came to be, what's up with this resurrection machine, and uh, ultimately solve the case of who killed Roger Mortis before uh, he decomposes. Uh, the movie was directed by Mark Goldblatt. Uh, he's directed only three movies, but was the editor on Terminator, Commando, Nightbreed, Predator 2, Terminator 2, uh, Super Mario Brothers movies, True Lies, Showgirls, Starship Troopers, Armageddon, Hollow Man, Pearl Harbor. It's a pretty crazy career this guy's had editing film. So it's interesting that this is uh, his one of his big directorial foyers. You know, that I feel like that makes sense. I feel like I see a little bit from some of those movies you mentioned, kind of like a little bit of the the... the the blood, the DNA, a little <laughs> bit, or I guess like maybe the ideas of what, or you know, the feelings of those movies, I think, come through in Dead Heat. And I think that's taken to new heights when you learn who wrote the screenplay, that being Terry Black, brother of Shane Black, the writer and creator of the Lethal Weapon series. So this movie definitely does have action filmmaking running through its blood in a lot of ways. Uh, and in some interesting ways. Uh, it is also has some pretty stunning visual effects uh, by Ernest Farino and some great practical special effects and makeup by Steve Johnson, uh, all of which we'll get into. So because most people probably don't know how this movie shakes out, uh, we're going to give you a quick rundown and sort of discuss things throughout. It opens on two dudes who are robbing a jewelry store in what can only be described as bank robber masks. Uh, and they're looking a little bit worse for wear, kind of blotchy and decaying perhaps. Uh, we then cut to detectives Roger Mortis and Doug Bigelow cruising in their Chevy, Doug rhythmically pounding on the dash when they get the call from dispatch about the robbery. They floor it over there and cops are in a standoff with the robbers. There are like 50 cops. Uh, the police fire on these would-be robbers, uh, but then they simply won't go down and the robbers shoot about 10 or so officers. One of the robbers accidentally blows himself up with a grenade and Roger takes the initiative and drives the lieutenant's car full force into the other robber smashing into him. Uh, so how do we feel about that opening sequence? The escalation of that fight and shootout is wild. Like it <laughs> begins as kind of a standard, as depicted in movies, standard cop robber shootout. And then suddenly, yeah, grenades are being thrown, explosions. And so as far as like a, a, a comedic setup that was a lot of fun and great. And it then reinforces the fact that like these robbers are semi-indestructible unless you throw a grenade at them and ex <laughs> like explode them in a ball of fire. Or smash into them with the car and the dummy work on or that smash. car smash. Yeah. It's upsettingly convincing. It's really shocking. Excellent dummy work. <laughs> no, I agree. It definitely <clears throat> exciting way to kick off the film in a moment. You don't really think about any, I had no idea this was like a zombie film going into it. 
<laughs> so don't really like think about it. You're like, oh, that's like kind of weird, but there's so much else going on that it's, you know, kind of forget about it. And then pretty quickly that's shown as like, oh, this is like a really excellent setup for this film. Doug uh, sidles over after everything is settled and uh, quips, you have the right to remain disgusting. Uh, Joe Piscopo's oh. going to have a lot of quips. Oh my God. At first I was like, okay, I dig in it. And then it got to a point where I was like, I cannot listen to another Piscopone <laughs> or whatever his name is. Like little, maybe ad-libbed joke. I actually mm. looked him up and he was on fucking SNL from like 1980 to 1984, which yeah, maybe- Yeah, big SNL guy. I'd, I'd never heard of him. And I was like, oh, maybe that like is uh, the reason that his jokes are just- so bad <laughs> it also stops the movie dead every time he makes a joke which is and relentless i know his delivery is like intentionally flat i guess but like it really stops the momentum of like every scene <laughs> it has to be on purpose right like there's no other way i understand it and then i think at the end there's i feel like it ends on a really funny moment of that of like this is you know we'll we'll get to it but bringing kind of this trait back i thought worked as like a way to end it so i thought this was it was funny not funny and then came back again to being funny yeah and very you know very true to the character i'll say he really sticks to his guns even though it does uh, even though i don't think they understand that it's the difference between comic relief and distraction because it does ultimately weigh things down a bit I wonder if he recognized the type of movie or like, I I wonder if during production it was like, oh, wow, this movie uh, will not necessarily go down in the books as like comedic high art. So I might as well just like drive home the ridiculousness and almost sabotage every scene to try to endow it with even more comedic, uh, I don't know, levity. Who knows? He I was like, I'm going to sink this ship with every single quip I make. <laughs> I do find him well paired against Tree Williams, though, who is also comedic in his own way, um, but is sort of more playing kind of like the straight character and um, the sort of typical kind of brass tacks, uh, noir kind of detective in a way. So I think that they're really well paired. And it's too bad Sam's not here because I would again recommend to Sam the Phantom, which is a uh, Billy Zane in a superhero movie that's styled much in the way of the mummy. And you get Treat Williams as a comic foil to Billy Zane. So that's pretty great. But they, they return to the station. The, uh, the chief yells at them for the devil may care tactics and excessive on the job parking tickets, but gives them one more chance. Um, we get some pretty great, you know, sort of general eighties police stuff. Doug saying, I love this job, Roger. I love the power. I love the little badges. I love being a human target for anyone within sniping range of a donut shop. Uh, Doug also notes the recent string of robberies uh, are typical in their MOs, but that they, quote, won't die as far as these uh, these robberies seem to go. So they're on the task, uh, but they're also cutting it up a little bit. We get to know their dynamic a little bit. Uh, death, uh, Roger and Doug talk about their death day. Uh, which is the date of their inevitable deaths. Uh, Doug suggesting that it's like a big party where, quote, you can get totally ripped, man, pick out and invite all your friends. Uh, and that's something that you're going to want to hang on to because that comes up later. Uh, Rebecca, the mortician, arrives to examine the robbers and it's clear that she and Roger have something of a past. Uh, Rebecca reveals that these robbers had died and been autopsied and are now returning to the morgue for a second time. She also points out that the corpses are full of a chemical preservative that is distributed by Dante Pharmaceuticals. 
then Dr. McNabb, uh, Darren McGavin, the dad from A Christmas Story, shows up and hilariously dismisses her work. Uh, so this is giving us a bit of context for uh, for these characters and for what may lay ahead. That's where he's from. Yeah. Yeah, and he's one of my favorite elements of the movie as it goes on. I don't, I don't want to, like, I don't know if anybody else who's ever watched this movie has thought about this, but I got some, like, Point Break vibes a little of, like, mysterious robbers who we can't catch. Are they connected? What is the deal with this? Two-partner dynamic. Is there a connection? I think the movie doesn't go much farther, but at least in, like, setup, I was also, like, thinking about Point Break a little. I don't know if anybody else, if that crossed anybody's mind ever, but that's kind of what I was thinking. I saw it. It hadn't crossed my mind, but I'm always happy to think of Point Break. Oh, Christine, you said you saw a bit of that in the mix, too? Or it did cross my mind while I was watching the movie, but now that Connor's bringing it up, I can see that. (laughs) Or, like, in the nice sort of family of, like, is this set in L.A.? Is this an L.A.? Like, buddy cop movie? Okay, so, like... L.A. vibes, you know, cruising around in the car and, uh, yeah, and and the scenes and the, you know, with the police chief and who doesn't quite understand what's going on and uh, kind of the smart alecky responses of the of the two, you know, two cops. I, I can. Well, and then looking for a deeper layer. Yes, right. And recognizing that there's something, uh, you know, uh, mysterious at play. But instead of a surfing guru, it's uh, a corporation testing to reanimate the dead. <laughs> to take billions of dollars from uh, like corporate tycoons. But we'll get there. We'll get to that later. <laughs> to a degree, that's exactly where we're headed. They investigate Dante Pharmaceuticals, uh, where the receptionist is reading a Playboy magazine uh, for some reason. I guess that another little throwaway comic beat that's not really explained or elaborated on. But then that receptionist um, is hilarious because later he just like pulls out a gun and it's like, wait, how did you have this in your desk? Everyone in this movie, everyone in this movie has an Uzi on hand. Everybody. It's crazy. (laughs) Uh, But they go in and they're uh, they meet Randy James, uh, who is the young PR executive who takes them on a tour of the facility. Uh, Included on the tour is the asphyxiation room. Uh, decompression chamber for putting down test animals. Interestingly enough, uh, when Doug breaks into a restricted area of the lab, he discovers a huge machine on top of which is a grotesque three-nosed, several-eyed and two-mouthed zombie biker. And they begin to brawl. Roger jumps to his aid. Uh, Roger saying, what is this thing? And Doug quipping, very ugly. Uh, In the scuffle, Roger is knocked into the asphyxiation room and Doug, having been subdued by the zombie, watches in horror as Roger is suffocated to death. So Treat Williams, Detective Roger Mortis, is killed very early on into this movie. That was a horrifying scene. To die by decompression chamber, a first? Have you seen this in any other movie? Uh, Not... Not as a decompression room, like maybe with like airlocks or something, but yeah, or maybe, maybe like a Venn horizon with the vacuum of space, but certainly not with a, with an asphyxiation room, which later on Roger replies uh, when explaining to Rebecca that Doug has died that way is that he died the way dogs are supposed to die, which is like, I don't think dogs are supposed to die this way. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> right. that, that line required, I think, another. Let's read through this again. <laughs> <laughs> This is really, this is the take we're going with. I really liked the death by decompression room because it was a relatively clean death. You know, you just see Mm -hmm. Treat Williams grasping for air and he does a great job dying. 
But I think it really is a nice contrast to the later absolute extremely gnarly deaths that we see to come. And so I, I really like that sort of like clean death in solid white decompression room. And then like, <laughs> just like blood and skin and uh, sinuous like membrane e everywhere <laughs> in other rooms. Definitely. Not a very sterile movie. <laughs> Outside no, of this the moment. So uh, as as I said, Rebecca has arrived. Doug explains to her that Rogers died. Um, and but also really quickly, th that biker is crazy looking. He's like some sort of like weird, like multi-faced pig man, which is when the kind of like great. horror and practical effects start coming in. It, it, oh yeah, he looks great as in like a very inventive character. Yeah, and the rest of the zombies that we see moving forward don't look anything like it, which is interesting. Like they got the like weirdest looking one out of the way at the beginning. Uh, but they decide that... Uh, because of this uh, machine, they should look into it. And they discover that the machine in the lab is actually a resurrection machine. Rebecca saying, this is how they do it, Doug. This is how they resurrect the dead. And Doug replies, get out of here. They place Roger on the table. And after a series of sparks and lightning bolts, Roger is revived. Roger says he feels great, but they discovered that he has no pulse. He cuts himself on a beaker in the lab and it doesn't bleed. Uh, Rebecca runs some tests and discovers that through the machine, uh, though the machine can resurrect dead tissue, uh, it doesn't allow for natural regeneration, leaving Roger with 10 to 12 hours until he decomposes into, quote, a kind of organic stew. Uh, Doug and Roger are now on the course to track down his killer. Uh, I do like that the movie has that condition, those rules, that there is a ticking clock, uh, that Roger only has so much time with Doug's help to piece together uh, how he has actually died and possibly put a stop to it. We don't know at this point. I also like that it it's pretty straightforward in that you see the resurrection machine immediately. Like there's no sort of like more complicated plot of them trying to like break into the resurrection machine. I mean, maybe it's an implied action of them like breaking into this resurrection machine or whatever and using it. But for the most part, essentially, the next scene is uh, Mortis just lying on the on the table that is this machine. And so I was like, you know what? Suspension of disbelief. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to roll with it. They found this room and it works effectively. And then next scene, Mortis no. now has 12 hours to live. <laughs> no need to over explain. Exactly. Exactly. Get him on the table. We know what this is. Yeah. Yeah, get some lightning effects in there, have him shake a little, and then, then he's back. And what a cool table, like this weird, like, clear Lego table. Um, it was just a cool set piece. It's got, like, these rising cylinders that surround the body and stuff. Yeah, like little stalagmites or something. It's weird. Uh, well, so then, uh, as they're off to investigate it, they drive, and uh, Roger's lips begin to pale. Uh, so he goes to pick up some cherry red lipstick. Doug compliments that it, quote, brings out his eyes. It's just kind of a hacky joke, but it's going to be important later. Uh, they arrive at Randy's house to interrogate her with some, one of my favorite deliveries ever, which is, um, mind if we ask you a whole lot of questions? And Miss James, I got locked in that room where they kill animals and some nutcase decompressed me. So I'm not in a very good mood. <laughs> Just some really kind of like a noir lines that are inherently ridiculous because of the situation. Um, they watch a video of Arthur Loudermilk, Randy's father, played by an aged Vincent Price, when they are interrupted by a pair of armed zombies. Uh, Roger has shot many, 
many times to no effect, uh, which is really hilarious because, you know, obviously he's undead. Uh, they lure them out into the pool where Doug spears one of them with a broken umbrella and the other is thrown into water and electrocuted. You were underwater for five minutes. Can you teach my girlfriend to do that? <laughs> yeah, thanks, Joe Piscopa. Doug <laughs> added again. It's not every day that you see cool bloodshot, like gun wound effects and people not being thrown around. Like the squibs are just going mm-hmm. off and holes are appearing and he's just running because he, I guess, doesn't feel it. He's a zombie. And so it's like, it's just a cool, like not something you see every day in a movie. And interesting in the sense too, that we're taught that he doesn't bleed because he's undead. But every time he's shot, it's like these little, these great little squibs and gore packs that it's like, obviously he's being blown apart bloodily. And like, we got opportunities to see him after the fact, just standing around with like a bloodstained bullet ridden shirt, just calmly talking, which is kind of great. Cause you don't, you're right. You don't see that in many movies. And then later he's just, his hand gets chopped up and he's just like, yeah, t-, you know, he, no comment, just bandaging it. So I think there's lots mm-hmm. of cool, just like physicality, specific physicality that clearly went into thinking about how somebody with this power set kind of would operate. I don't know how intentional it was or if this is like <laughs> the actor's choice, but definitely felt like a well thought out, like how does this zombie kind of work? But I don't know if that's putting too much thought into it. <laughs> I also like how sort of breezily and optimistically Mortis is taking his circumstance, you know? <laughs> and maybe optimistic is is too suggesting that he's happy about it, which he, he's not. But he seems so cool, calm, and collected most of, of the movie. Or just under-energized. <laughs> I, can't, I can't decide whether it's Treat Williams' performance of just like, Eh, all right, whatever, okay. <laughs> or that that was an intentional um, performance choice. But I think it's effective because it 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 allows you to just sort of lightly skip along with these characters in these bizarre circumstances without feeling like they're confronting in an intense way their own second mortality. <laughs> yeah, I think it's definitely, intentional because i think treat williams does play it with a certain buoyancy and like almost detached focus that that feels necessary for character written to be such a straight (laughs) character you know so we have a great cutaway scene here with uh roger brushing his hair in the mirror and discovering that some of it is thinning and falling out as he continues continues combing and then we get a a crazy poltergeist poltergeist esque jump scare uh when he closes the medicine cabinet and sees in his uh mirror the reflection of himself as a shrieking corpse which is like a super like typical looking like horrific zombie effect which is really great it was on it was so good i was like it's really giving that poltergeist scene a run for its money like truly and honestly yeah and that in truth sam's uh choice of poltergeist is what made me think of this movie so i was glad she brought it up They go then to investigate uh, a Mr. Thule in Chinatown who has bought a bunch of the chemicals from Dante Pharmaceuticals. Uh, Mr. Thule at his butcher shop sets off his own in-house resurrection machine, causing all of the butchered animals in the shop to spring to life. We have like cooked duck. We have uh, barbecued pigs. We have a large double rack of beef and even a disembodied liver attacking the trio. It's just like so totally bizarre and absolutely hilarious at the same time. It is unbelievable. Uh, like the 
pools of just like liquid and mucus. It's so intense and hilarious. And just the way that they were able to make the duck, the cooked duck heads move was, was pretty remarkable. Yeah. And then that just huge hunk of liver on Treat Williams face. I, I I truly have never seen anything like it. Like that (laughs) scene was so carefully choreographed and I, felt like the the movie cared the most about those particular scenes <laughs> and felt like this is worth not caring about other scenes as much. <laughs> I love that Doug had back-to-back quips when fighting the pig. It's like, like they couldn't yeah. like yeah, they couldn't pick one, so they just threw some in and just kept all of them in the movie. And that when he shoots the pig, it flies like 20 feet across the room. <laughs> When, like, guns in this world have not been shown to do that. Like, when he shoots normal people, they stumble, look forward, and fall. Zombies don't move at all, but this pig just, bam, flies across the room. I guess it's a cooked zombie pig. You know, take the the shot a little different. But, but yeah, it is ridiculous how it does soar across the room. Oh, when he throws the chicken. Was it the chicken that gets thrown into the meat grinder? Like, perfect, like, swoosh. That's, Mm -hmm. That's pretty funny, too. And yeah, the back-to-back quips of either uh, I've lost my appetite or I'm thinking of becoming a vegetarian. All these different, like, yeah, just throwaways where it's just like, go ahead and riff, uh, Joe Piscopo, and we'll keep them all. Yeah, it feels like the instincts of, like, uh, Judd Apatow or Adam McKay, like, sometimes the worst instincts of that kind of improv filmmaking. But this mm-hmm. feels very intentional in that way. I don't, like I said, I don't know if that was the intention. I have to assume it was because it's just so ridiculous. Yeah, and some really, actually some humorously written, I don't know, well-written, but they're hilariously executed. Another one at the end of the sequence is uh, Randy pointing out to uh, to Roger, Roger, you're hurt. And Roger responding, lady, I'm fucking dead. I was I was laughing pretty hard at that one. One of my favorite lines. A lot of stuff happens here because then they're just on the case. They go off to the library and discover that rich people have died within recent months, all seemingly connected to Thule's shop. Roger remarks, these obituaries, they're writing new ones all the time. They're writing mine. Roger Mortis, beloved husband to nobody, father to no one, who always thought he'd go out in a blaze of glory. And then he gets upset and runs off and is chased by the two of them. They go back to the morgue where Rebecca discovers a secret message uh, that is written in numbers. So that uh, sort of leading to some questions. Uh, But then as they go back to uh, meet up with Doug, who has returned to Randy's house, they discover that Doug has been bound and drowned in one of Randy's many fish tanks. That was gnarly, like dug upside down in the fish tank. Although I think it was came at just the right point because I think by then I was sort of like sick of his character. <laughs> and I was like, hell yeah, okay. I mean, I knew he was going to also be resurrected because uh, you, you know where this movie is going. But I was like, <laughs> okay, at least we'll have like 10 minutes without him. And then maybe I'll feel better that he's reappeared in this movie <laughs> but what a great a nice death. breather tied upside down dunked in fish tank i feel like the i feel like 80s movies loved fish tanks because mm-hmm. it was always it would always be like a wealthy person it's like a sign a, of affluence yeah exactly you have that sort of clean modern 80s look plus fish tank and ultimately the fish tank will like explode or something will, you know, something would be off with the fish tank. It always always creates a sense of, like, uh, f- uh, fragility 
to the to the scene if there's like an 80s fish tank but anyhow this which also like was gonna get shot up yeah well that didn't that happen earlier in the film at uh her house mm-hmm. when she like laments there about whole, her fish there is a whole thing about fish tanks in this movie because uh the uh coroner or what what's her job like all yeah she's the uh, yeah coroner yeah she's the coroner she has a fish tank with with fake fish in it <laughs> so that she doesn't have to feed them. It's like, they're Which, just as pretty and I don't have to feed them. Yeah. You know, hey, why not? But yeah, this movie does have a, uh, maybe that it was setting up for Doug's kill scene. And as we're zigging and zagging with all these surprises, especially Doug's, uh, Doug's death, they take him down. And then after a shower, uh, which is kind of a strange time for that, uh, Randy reveals to Roger that she had actually died and was continuously resurrected by louder milk with the promise of a natural lifespan if she would help them, uh, but that she was duped. And then we it, it's this crazy sequence where suddenly her arm, her hand starts changing colors and rotting in real time. Her, her arm begins to rot at an accelerated rate until it falls off. Her face begins to sag as she continues rotting. And eventually her head falls off and the skin melts off her skull while still apologizing to Roger one last time. That scene is like pure artistry. I mean, it's horrific, <laughs> but it's it's like wild. I don't know how they did that. Do you have production notes on this? Like how they like on pulled that stuff, off? No. It's, it seems yeah. like they definitely, as far as when the face is lying on the ground, they definitely do some pretty sloppy like green screen work with her face before it turns into the full-blown skull. But when it melts as a skull with the oozing liquid brains and everything, it's pretty amazing. And that's some good horror stuff, folks. That's uh, that's that's the flimsy excuse I have for talking about this in October. Yeah, I mean, I was horrified. I thought I would thought it was pretty effective. But then after this, uh, Roger, mortified by the death and decay surrounding him on all sides, uh, including his own, sits down and realizes the numbers at the mausoleum are letters corresponding with those on a phone, revealing a message: body doc which just so happens to be uh, Darren McGavin uh, McNabb's license plate. Uh, so Roger returns to the morgue to confront McNabb. He accuses McNabb of ripping off the rich with the promise of eternal life while creating zombie criminals to do his bidding. Uh, then Mr. Thule and several zombies overpower Roger and lock him in an ambulance with Rebecca, who apparently they've killed off screen, I guess. Uh, Roger manages to put the ambulance into neutral, causing it to soar down the steep, steep street into several other cars before an awesome fiery explosion at the bottom of the hill. After being placed in a body bag, Roger rises, half burnt and hellbent on revenge. I feel like there's some injustice done that she was killed off screen. Like, I don't know. Something's. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I, so is Doug, was... but, you know, but she's also <laughs> given less screen time and character than Doug is. So, yeah, Shit, I was so confused. I thought that was Randy. And I thought the discontinuity was, oh, well, like she's put in the body bag. <laughs> But like somehow her body got back together or maybe it was more of a dream <laughs> sequence of like her face melting or whatever. That, oh, that was Rebecca. All right. Interesting. Yeah, so the way it makes more sense, thing. but also no sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a weird chunk of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and this brings us then to kind of the big climax of the movie. And boy, is it a third act climax. Uh, back at Dante Pharmaceuticals, a number of elderly, wealthy investors have gathered around the resurrection machine for a presentation. McNabb laments Loudermilk's passing before introducing Loudermilk himself and the real-life, no-shit, Vincent Price strolls into the scene. A guest cries out, but I saw you buried, Arthur. Damn it, I saw you buried! 
uh, Louder Milk reveals that uh, the buried man in his grave was, quote, a volunteer. <laughs> he goes on to say that the demonstration that you are about to witness makes burial somewhat unnecessary. He pitches them this premise that and promise that for half their fortune, they can live forever. Everybody dies, rich or poor. Death doesn't discriminate until now. Let's face it. Poor people are supposed to die, but the same rule doesn't apply to us. God wants us to live forever. And even if he doesn't, you can always buy him off. That is a great Vincent Price. And I was <laughs> saying before we were recording that hearing that voice in this movie made me immediately want to watch Basil Baker Street, The Great Mouse Detective. <laughs> because to me, always hearing Vincent Price's voice is hearing Radigan in my mind. And part of me was like, I'm, I need to just watch that movie right now. And then part of me was like, what the fuck, Vincent Price? What are you doing in this movie? I mean, he steals like the, the scene with all of the other billionaire millionaires. It's a huge reveal, to... yeah. It, and, and the movie, I think, does a great job. No, I mean, we see him briefly in the VHS tape at Randy's house when it's revealed that it's mm -hmm. her father. But if you weren't paying attention you might not necessarily know it was him and then the movie just sets up an amazing i don't know reveal for who who he is and gives vincent price definitely some great great little little moments yeah like i i expected that he was too old and sickly at the time of filming so that video will was all we were get and then they could be like look vincent price is in our movie but then he strolls in in this suit and gives this monologue it's amazing but the monologue is interrupted <laughs> although not before uh, the two security guards who are up front uh, are watching the video feed and they say, the one guy delivers, how many of these rich bozos do you think he's gotten in a night, huh? <laughs> it's like, well, they're the security guards. They should know that. But the delivery is really hilarious. Roger, though, then rides in astride a motorcycle through the glass doors of the building and then into a rolling slide where he turns and blasts those two guards. Pretty incredible entry. Uh, he grabs their Uzis because, as we've established, everyone has one. Uh, and he plows through several other guards, including one that's clearly also a zombie, as they fire into each other with gore and squibs flying, both seemingly unharmed for, like, 35 seconds. That, I think, is is one of the great highlights of this movie. It's like, you know, it's the two characters. They're both holding Uzis. They're both blasting right into each other at a close range. And both of them taking the hits, but neither of them flinching, neither of them harmed. And like, I didn't know I needed to see that in a movie until this movie gave it to me because I didn't know to ask for it. And in such close range too. Like we're not talking like across the room, right? It's like, they're like what? Maybe four feet apart? They're like apart? feet away from each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. At most four, like two to three feet like from one <laughs> another. And it just goes on for so long. Uh, but then even after as this has gone on for so long, it pushes this uh, the zombie guard into the... Uh, the asphyxiation room and then roger still gets still pulls off a grenade and throws it in after him and then fires a couple of shots in after that just a quick thing about that scene or like the also the uzi scene you mentioned that the this director greenblatt gold greenblatt goldblatt goldblatt worked on some verhoven movies that makes mm -hmm. total sense to me i think mm -hmm. the 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 sort of Firing uh, and hitting back and forth in just extended and gruesome detail reminds me of in RoboCop, like the scene uh, where the 
company head or whoever is just getting like completely annihilated in the conference. The ED 209 just blowing him away. Yeah. Yeah. Just one ex- like, and among other Verhoeven scenes where just there's an absurd amount of gore, but it definitely makes sense that those scenes are definitely sort of kindred spirits with kind of the, the Verhoeven <laughs> sensibility of just, let's see how long we can extend this intensely comedically gruesome moment. So Roger storms the lab and the scatter or they're killed in the crossfire. He approaches McNabb, who reveals that he's got a trick up his sleeve. He's resurrected Doug, who has been dead for so long that he is mindless and obedient. Uh, kill this guy, would you? McNabb demands. Uh, Doug repeats the request, almost like an automaton, as he starts strangling Roger. Roger, pleading, reminds Doug of their friendship, saying, Hey, Doug, so do you realize that we both have the same debt day? We can throw a party. We can invite all our friends. Get really ripped. Remember the lipstick brings out my eyes? Doug slowly realizes that it's him uh, and realizes, of course, in tandem who he is and snaps out of it. Uh, he says, Roger, he said that I should hurt you but I'm going to hurt him in a pretty great delivery. <laughs> so yeah, they're both converging on McNabb and McNabb fires into the two of them with yet another Uzi. Uh, Louder Milk uh, shouts, kill them. Why can't you kill them to McNabb? Uh, to which actor Darren McGavin shouts to Louder Milk, legend Vincent Price to shut up, you old fart. <laughs> which is just, just that that moment exists on film. Darren McGavin telling Vincent Price to shut up, you old fart. It's just such a great little moment for so many reasons. So then uh, McNabb is refusing to be uh, taken alive by the two of them and blows his own head off with an Uzi on screen, uh, cheating Roger out of his revenge. But then he and Doug have an idea. They throw McNabb's corpse on the table, reviving him, and then asking, hey, Doc, want to see what happens when you resurrect somebody twice? They turn the machine up all the way and McNabb explodes in a gory, bloody mess. That was rough, but also a great use of the resurrection machine. Who knew it could do that? Yeah, it's like, uh, what happens when you zap them twice? It's like putting something in the microwave too long, it turns out. So at this point, uh, Louder Milk is pleading with the two detectives to save the machine, to which Doug and Roger blow it apart with their Uzis. They walk off into a fog, which is just sort of appeared in the building. Uh, Roger's saying, you know, Doug, I think this could be the end of a beautiful friendship. Uh, the title surges forward across the screen to Doug Settle's titular track, Dead Heat, and we cut to credits. And that, folks, is uh, pretty much how Dead Heat unfolds in you all miss the such an, gory details. You miss such an important moment at the end. What's that? What would Doug want to be reincarnated as, Dave? Oh, of course. Well, I did. For, <laughs> yeah, for the sake of taste, I actually left that out. But he started talking about, um, do you think we'll be reincarnated? Roger, I don't know. And Doug. I hope we get to choose what we come back as. I would choose to be the seat on a girl's bike. To which he's like, oh, that's very intriguing. <laughs> it's a good choice. <laughs> mm-hmm. But a characteristically Doug line, it's like that just an onslaught of Doug lines the entire movie. And I was like, yep, that's par for the course right there for that character. <laughs> Even when Risen of the Dead, he is still Doug Bigelow through and through. Right. Really quickly, though, I, I chose this really for for horror because, as I said at the top, I, I really didn't know what to choose. I've been I'm having a hard time settling a horror movie recently, uh, but I did find this to contain, in, in spite of being a kind of a ridiculous, campy '80s action movie, to contain a lot of really great gore, a lot of really over the top uh, scene spectacle and set piece creature 
effects to a degree. I really love how Roger rots throughout the, the course of the movie, kind of really just initially through subtle makeup. But then after the ambulance crash, half of him is burned until the end of the movie. And it like changes the style of his hair. It almost looks like he has more attitude. Yeah, he turns into kind of this like bad boy like or like like mm-hmm. like kind of uh, edgy version of himself. And so it's like mm, the uh, death really brings out the the. The edgy. best in Roger Moritz. Right, the best. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> also, right as the uh, the ambulance is careening down toward the other car, it's just that really great Treat Williams. Oh, oh yeah! That ambulance like van rolling down that hill and just crashing into car after car. I was like, this is somewhat unnecessary, but I'm <laughs> I'm really I'm into it. Yeah, apparently um, all the cars on that street were in neutral or something, or didn't have brakes. <laughs> Yeah, it was kind of like sometimes you just need to like have like a collision, an uncontrolled collision, which that <laughs> clearly looks like. And it's him accepting death. He's just going with it. Yeah. Mm-mm. But yeah, a wild ride nonetheless. Uh, a lot of gore. A uh, lot of, I hesitate to say heart because it is so comical, but you know, I, I appreciate the bond between these two characters. I think that Williams and Piscopo have some chemistry. Um, I think the other characters kind of fall by the wayside, except for Darren McGavin, who turns in a pretty hilarious performance, mostly because I remember him as the dad from A Christmas Story, but also in some other ways. And some really, yeah, just some really cool practical effects, a lot of really great pulse pounding action, and a totally absurd premise that just continues to escalate in every possible direction. Before we round out the episode, does anyone have any other highlights, anything that really jumped out at them or anything that they particularly think didn't work about Dead Heat? Do we feel that it is something that qualifies as a quote-unquote horror film? I would I would call it a horror movie. I think <clears throat> the Google algorithm describes it as a horror comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that there's enough of the practical effects, the... It's in a, you know, it's not trying to be a scary movie, but it's definitely tapping into you know, there's zombies in it, resurrection, gore, being surprise attacked, violence. I think it definitely lives within the horror genre on a special part of the horror rainbow of the kaleidoscope that is horror movies. But I, I'd say, yeah, you could definitely consider this. Uh, I would call it a comedy horror. Comedy action horror. Like, uh, it reminds me a bit. Yeah, it almost reminds me in a sense of like uh, something like a Shaun of the Dead in that regard. Mm-hmm. Maybe not as thoroughly focused, but definitely the same spirit. For yes, sure. that thought. Def- I think, yeah, you've definitely nailed it. Uh, Edgar uh, Edgar Wright, I feel like, like could be on this wavelength of dead heat. Oh, no, I was just going to add, I, I think I texted you this, Christine. If, it, uh, if But now I'm jumping on that in conjunction with Edgar Wright. If you give me an Edgar Wright-directed version of this starring Sam Richardson and uh, Tim Robinson of Detroiters, and I think you should leave now, that would that could be, be a knockout. That would that, be... Yeah. Okay, Edgar, you heard it here in real time. On butter with that, because I know <laughs> that you uh, listen to every single episode. Uh, so... We're ready. You can just pay us the millions for the rights to that plot. And then, uh, yes, and then just with that dead heat, which we now, my God, guys, we would never have to work again if Edgar Wright would just like (laughs) buy our script or even just buy the concept. Uh, and then, oh man, that would be such a great movie. This is a bit of a tangent, but that this reminds me of there was a podcast whose goal was to buy the rights to a comic book character that they could then adapt in their own way. And it didn't matter how F-list, Z-list this character was from like Marvel, DC, or any of the, even the older brands. 
Um, it was their goal that this unused, even like golden age character or whatever. Um, and they, I forget, I forget which one they bought, but it was appeared in one issue of some like one-off comic series from like the fifties. And so they bought the rights and they made their own like little animated five minute animated thing with it. And then the podcast ended. I forget the name of it, but it's so just like, reminded me if we were to do that. <laughs> so like how much, how much are we talking to buy a Z list superhero? I forget. I haven't listened to the podcast. I just, I, I was reading an article about it. You better be careful too, because now if you're buying it from Disney, it's going to be expensive. Mm. Right. Mm. Never do dealings with Disney. Well, we have so many ideas that we've thrown out into the, into the ether, but I no this Dave, one, this I, one I think is the winner. I, I really do think that, that Dave's combo of Edgar Wright plus Tim Robinson plus Sam Richardson yeah, Doing money now, please. Yes, right. <laughs> Pay up. Can we have, I've, done, I've done the work for you. Money now, please. <laughs> Can we have Patty Harrison be in there too? Oh my gosh, so yeah, funny. Okay. Uh, yeah, as like Randy. <laughs> as Randy, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, folks, I suppose that's going to about do it for this week. Uh, unless anyone else has anything to plug, of course. Well, does anyone have, have anything to plug? I, I like to plug Witchpath again. Uh, friends of the show, Christina. Rasha Snyder, or, uh, owner of A Novel Idea in Pasco Gavin, South Philly. Alyssa, my wife, do a wonderful witchy occulty podcast that you should totally check out on Spotify. You know, all the places, Apple, you listen to your podcast. Tis the season, and as Dave mentioned last week, it's always the season for witchy and occulty things. And of course, you can find uh, a suite of other really great podcasts, Philly-based and largely movie-based. I've learned there is one that's not. I think there's mm-hmm. one that's, uh, that's, yeah, that's about um, formula racing. Yeah, F- F1 FEA is a Formula One racing podcast. Right. I believe. Which is interesting. I, 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 I'm i going to check that out. That's It's a great it's a world I've not yet explored. But yeah, the name is perfect. Uh, but also other great podcasts, uh, Disney Deviants, uh, featuring Adeze, who was on our on our show recently and did a great job hosting. Uh, of course, our other friends, uh, Tori and Garrett through Killer Bees, uh, and just all the other really great podcasts on that network. Uh, including ours. Uh, Speaking of us and all of our greatness, you can get in touch with us on our socials. That would be Butter With That on uh, Instagram, Butter With That on Facebook, Butter With That One at Twitter, and Butter With That Podcast at gmail.com. We love getting emails. And uh, if you send us one, chances are we'll read it on the air. So go ahead and let us know what you're thinking about as far as movies, the show, or uh, whatever's on your mind. Uh, and so with that, I suppose uh, we're going to bid you folks to do for the week. We'll be back with another spooky selection next week. But until then, hey, have a great whatever and uh, take care. Bye. Dave, who would you cast as the leads out of those two for your pitch? Who would be who would be who would be done? I'm who'd still be? not sure. I think it would probably be uh, I think you give the role of uh, uh, Piscopo's role, Doug, over to uh, Tim Robinson, probably. Yeah, uh, because he could probably take it in some some more absurd directions than did uh, than did Piscopo. But also Richardson would be a really great, compelling lead. So I, I, I'd say as a two hander, that's how I would distribute that. That's what I was thinking, too.